I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to a really special episode of The Nero Show featuring Patrick and Benji from the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. We're going to take a very different look at the upcoming Tour de France, asking the question which brands have the most at stake when it comes to this event. The boys offer their take on the US gravel scene, a possible scenario that sees a breakaway league taking off in the Middle East. How is Benji's training going? Has Patrick found any friends in Andorra? And what does the future hold for the boys? Guys, this is an absolute banger of a pod, and we're going to start it with some controversy at the Giro. So it all kicked off at the Baby Giro this week, Jesse. What was what was going on there? There's a little bit of shenanigans. Yeah, it was all over Twitter, wasn't it? So all these kids holding on to <laughs> team cars, police motorbikes, minimum 10, 10 riders per car. It was hilarious. But I wanted to, to ask the guys, have you seen this before? Is this normal? What, what do you guys reckon? No, I wouldn't say it's normal to this degree. To have five guys to a car, that ratio is all off. Like last year <laughs> in the Tour, you know, Quintana getting a water bottle from the Shimano motorbike. Just a cheeky little... Just an extra pull for two, three seconds. Vlasov saw it, wasn't happy, but I don't know why these guys are doing it. A lot, a lot of these guys are actually pretty fit and are serious riders. Some of them will be on... These are not just like Italian 17-year-olds, right? Some of these guys are going to be on World Tour teams soon that were doing this. Sprinters, admittedly, well, but they will. Every Italian that's yeah. 17 years old with one functional leg like, ends up in a pro team anyway, so... <laughs> True, yeah, yeah, YOLO, whatever. But were they... Is there even a time cut in these races, Benji? There is probably a time cut in these races, but what you don't understand, Patrick, is that these riders were not trying to look for an advantage. They were pulling a mechanical car up the mountain to help out the driver. (laughs) The car had a mechanical. It's all that. Gents, I'm sorry. You you guys are focusing too much on the front of the race. (laughs) So my my only experience of this was I was at the... uh, Zero in, I'm going to say 2015, 2016, and it was a Zonkalon stage, the mm-hmm. one that Michael Rogers, I think, won. Now, after the first 20 guys went past, all good, boys are racing, happy days. Every other rider after that was potentially just freewheeling up the thing, and it wasn't cars or anything, it was the locals. The locals were just loving it, getting whoever the rider was. Give them a massive shove. It would be less common in the, the pro races because the people there's big crowds. People know there's phones. You can't get away with it these days. But in the smaller races with less crowds, I can tell you the back half of the field, this is the norm <laughs> rather than the exception. And I, yeah, oh, yeah. I've done it. It's the queen stage of like an Azerbaijan 2.2.2, you know, like they're going to have crazy <laughs> stuff going on. Do we see much... Of Roglic, like what percentage of Roglic do we see on that Giro TT uphill? 
a very small percentage. They reckon yeah. <laughs> oh, surely the Slovenian fans were giving him a push. Okay, we're not we're not going to do a, a a Tour de France preview on this pod, boys. But what I thought we might do: which brands, which equipment brands, do you think have the most at stake when it's coming up to this to this tour? I would start off by saying that it depends on what stakeholder we're looking at, because I might say something controversial to the equipment gurus that you two are, but I think ninety nine percent of the general cycling fan public doesn't give a crap about which bike is winning, which bike is losing, which group set is winning, which group set is losing, which glasses Pogacar has on once he wins on Otakam or whatever. It didn't happen, but maybe in the future at some point. I would say the stakeholders that those companies are looking at and saying, oh, we might lose some reputation to those might be teams and people in the sport, no? Brands get no credit for victories and success. Only for major fuck-ups. That's how it works. Like, if you have a skin suit that makes you go 20 seconds quicker, no one can see that. No one knows you did that work. Um, if a Yumbo Visma guy collapses in the heat, everyone's going to say, it's because you wore a black kit in France in July. What were you thinking? DSM have had heat stroke every Tour de France in their black kit. If they drop a chain, like, everyone's going to say it's Shram's fault. Even though, even though, even though the frequency of chain drops might be exactly the same between them and other competitors, it's just that's the way it is. So I think Shram's got pretty high stakes. It's the first Tour de France, Tour de France champions coming to defend, changing group set. They have a mechanical. People are going to blame the group set. That's just how it is. Um, tires. I don't know. Do people know what tires people are running? I don't know, but really. there were there were historically no mechanicals in last year's Tour de France, right? That were very controversial in the gobble stage, for example. So <laughs> yeah. So it depends on how many mechanics. If it like happens every single mountain stage or something in a descent or, or on the flat or something, mechanical, 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 then it gets obvious. But if it's one or two here and there, you can't really shout out and say, oh, it's Shram's fault. But then again, some people are against it. Some people are pro it. I have absolutely no clue what you guys are into when it comes to that. For the tour, though, you... I, I actually think it's... I don't agree. I think it's all to gain, nothing to lose. People have such short memories. Product recalls, uh, you know, things snapping, wheels folding. The general public doesn't care. Might, they might get... They might blow up on Instagram the day it happens. Within a week, most people have forgotten. And I would say someone... P- Pogaccia wearing a pair of Cycon Sunnies. That'll sell crazy amounts i'm still like i still think of iconic riders in iconic races and what they were wearing and it's still stuck in my brain whereas the the things that have gone wrong eh, people kind of forget i think it's shram and daylight as far as mm-hmm. who's got the most to learn to to lose here like when they went down the yumbo visma route this would have this would have been the reason yeah. they want they want that bike photo at the champs elysees with the yellow jersey this, it's like the last piece of the puzzle for them in terms of their marketing stretch and in terms of the chat. Like it's still the, the Shimano fanboys will still sort of probably throw it back in their faces and it probably doesn't move the needle dramatically. You're right, Benji, when it comes to, to that. But in, in the equipment world, this is, this is the kingpin. But it's funny because you're right, I reckon, Lantern, like not every piece of equipment is created equal. Like the, the group set's one job is to not fuck up. That's 
That's true. Yeah. You, you're not going to get to the end of that the tour and go. You know what? The chain efficiency of my of my shifting was what really won it for me here. It was you know it's I didn't have a drop chain. You're dead right. But it's it's funny. Like the bike stuff's not quite the same. It's kind of like a story, and we chatted about this last time. It's like a story that develops over like months and years. And I kind of think on that point, specialized almost have nothing to lose here. And another S works on the on the podium probably doesn't move the needle for them, you know. So Jesse, you think Jonas fork collapses on itself stage four, but then they get the photo on him holding the bike across the Champs Elysees on the podium. That's still net positive for the brand. They'll take it. Yep, I probably I probably agree. But it, people forget so quickly, so quickly. Yeah, and they'll blame the rider. Oh, he did this. They learned the mechanic. He did that. <laughs> well, it's that- it will. Arkea, yeah, for example, you. I swear they had a steer issue in Trobrelion. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people already <laughs> forgot that it happened. But I swear they switched something afterwards. I don't remember what it was. I think they started switching the type of bike they used from Bianchi. A Bianchi. Jesus Christ, I'm ruining the pronunciation of a, a bike brand here. I'm going to get torched. But... I think they switched to aero bike instead of, or from aero bike to mountain bike, the the climbing bike instead, or something. At um at Paris Roubaix, they didn't run the integrated handlebars; they all had the regular yeah. stem and bars on. Oh, okay. Yeah. Vote of confidence, <laughs> which is like the most, Im- <laughs> almost the most important piece of that bike is the new handlebars. So. <laughs> yeah. Will AG2R run the new Campy? Oh, that's a good question. Do they have enough stock? Does it exist yet in person? <laughs> I don't Can they afford it? It costs more than their actual sponsorship contract. They're going to decathlon. <laughs> they legitimately next year. could. What's their What's their rider budget? No, they've pretty got a pretty healthy budget. They're just not very good um, outside of Ben. Do you know? Do you guys have any interest? All the bike guys. You know, they're using decathlon bikes next year. The Rysel. The Van Rysels. Are they, yeah. Are they. Where has that come from? Who, what are those bikes? Uh, has anyone used uh, them? I've got a Van Rysel wind jacket, but that doesn't say anything about the bike. I've got like the, <laughs> the predecessor behind me, which is like the, I think BT Win was the previous Decathlon brand. Now they're using Van right. Rysel. Um, it's some Belgian brand, so obviously it stopped here. No, I, I have absolutely no clue. But <laughs> uh, I do feel like it's seen as a brand that is basically on the same level as BT Win back in the day. As in, on that level of, oh, these are not really the the top tier equipment brands. It's kind of like that that cheaper brand for beginner cyclists to jump into the sport. That make any sense? Yep. Yeah. Um. But there's there's making some pretty good claims about it. Like seven seven kilo road race bike. Mm-hmm. It looks like an SL seven. Yeah. Like it legitimately looks like an SL seven. And the reality, like Decathlon have been in the World Tour. They've spent a lot of time in the the World Tour. So it's it's not that dramatic a thing. I actually think it's one of the best, most exciting things to be to be happening in the sport next year. To be honest with you, um, yeah. So that's which ultimately, I think, doesn't see a home for BMC in the World Tour unless there's a reshuffle that I'm not aware now of. Now we've got a Tudor. Yeah, Tudor uh, yeah. got a lot of money. Big Swiss brand up on the up and up. They got a lot of money. They're splashing big cash apparently in the transfer market, um, and yeah. So they're going to be going hard to be World Tour in 27. I don't know. You can you can zone out for a bit, Benji. Um, <laughs> the the back well, not the backstory, but the the one that brought this to my attention is uh, in golf at the moment. 
there was a, a split as such between the PGA, which is the establishment, US-based or owned uh, establishment of the sport, and a new um, entity came into it, which was Live Golf, a Saudi-backed, multi-billion-dollar organization, which essentially came in and threw a lot of money around, created its own tour, um, bought bought all the riders, yep. uh, riders, all the <laughs> the, um, the players, <laughs> and they were separate for a couple of months, and then ultimately we've all come together in kumbaya moment, and which was all very strange in the last few weeks. And going forward, we're all going to be one entity. However, the Saudis, on the on the look of it, look like they've basically bought their way into the sport. So obviously this is happening a bit in our in our sport as well with a couple of teams in there. Patrick, do you have a take on this, where it's headed? Because I know there's some some changes coming with some of the teams as well. I think also more teams are going to have, so Yumbo, for example, are Yumbo going to feel the pressure with the sort of quite friendly Dutch supermarket sponsors falling away to maintain that budget against UAE and Ineos, and are they going to have to look east? That's question number one. Movistar already in the process of doing that. I would not be surprised in the next year, maybe in a year exactly, before the Tour de France or Vuelta, Movistar announcing a Saudi um, co-title sponsorship. Like Jaco, uh, a year ahead of that transition, where Alula was suddenly on the sleeve, and then suddenly it's Jaco Alula. That's that transition. Now, the next is actually buying into the sport, and I think that's already... Attempts have been made from various people, not just in the Middle East, to buy into ASO. And ASO is a private French family company. And they just say no. They just say no. Now, they've been able to do that because they have leverage. The UCI is a not-for-profit. Why would you want anything? Why would you want any part of the UCI, really? Um, it's ASO that's the... You want ASO. Or yep. RCS, so maybe yep. they go into four of Flanders Classics. Yep. So I think there could be a breakaway league because it's cheap. Let's go. How much is Benzema? Jesse, yeah, how much is Benzema and these golfers on? Uh, or the golfers? Like, how much did they... Inv- For year one of Live, what were the golfers' salaries? It was over a bill, right? Yes. Yeah, the, the, the rumoured salaries were all, were all 100 millions. The question that we're kind of circling around, in my opinion, is obviously you've got the sports washing side of things. That's one of the major reasons that these Eastern countries are getting into the sport in the first place. And if I take a look at this example, for example, the golf example you put, there's certainly something on in the in the gaming live stream world between the Twitch live streaming website and a newcomer called Kick Streaming, which is basically something that was birthed out of Twitch banning gambling streams. And then a, a major crypto gambling company started a competitor, Kick Streaming, and is basically buying all the streamers that are top on Twitch to start their own great website. So that's what's going on. It's basically a, a very parallel thing. And the question then is, does the the fact that it's a, a crypto gambling website, does the fact that it's a sport washing country inflict a major reputation loss versus how much it helps the sport get bigger financially? I, I mean, fans don't yeah. care in football, right? Aren't fans all the Man United fans like Qatar in, right? And Ratcliffe out. Surely, if if that really mattered, that, then Ratcliffe's bid was acceptable. Then he would be the new owner of Manchester United, and maybe we'll be. I haven't followed it closely enough, but yeah, I agree, Benji. Like, and it's also to the kick example. How long is their cash flow burn? How long can they burn cash? 
while they're doing it. Now, live like a burnt cash forever. And so, mm -hmm. what they should do is, it's very simple. I was talking to Jay about this the other night. Set up a new league. No, every rider is contracted to a world tour team. The world tour teams don't have to, they can just take themselves out of world tour and say for a year, there's this new league. We're going to do crits, just crits on motor circuits in the Middle East. The prize pool is a million each weekend. <laughs> a million each weekend. Going to pay each team each year 50 mil. So, or less, 30 mil on average. So 20 teams, 600 million, no problem. Prize pool is another 200 on top. Bam, 800 million, less than the whole of the live. You've got every team. How long would it take for ASO to fold with literally every pro cyclist out of the game? Or do what the PGA did and come to the table. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't know whether this is something you can particularly comment on, but like, is ASO's grip on the sport good or bad? Like to have, to have, I mean, the tour is fantastic. It's wonderful. But wouldn't we be better off with a sport that is more than three weeks? I mean, you guys cover the, the 12 months of the year. I just feel that if, if there was a bit more of a balance, we had a, you know, a balance across the majors, whatever it might be, whatever it might be called, that the sport would be a bit more accessible and approachable because it's, it's spread over a longer period of time. It's a balance game, I think, because on the one end, you've got the factor that ASO, yes, is hosting Tour de France, is hosting Paris-Roubaix, is hosting a lot of the bigger races, but there's also other organizers doing other races. So you've got this kind of like decentralization which is on one end good to the point that ASO can't literally decide everything. They've got a major foothold and sharehold across the market of cycling races, but they don't have 100% now, which is arguably a positive thing if you're thinking about the factor of, okay, ASO can't do everything they want, but on the other end, cycling would also be able to do so much more if it was a bit more centralized. If footage rights and so forth were more centralized if every aspect yeah. of the sport was more centralized if there was if it felt like there was the uci and aso kind of like being one thing above all races then it would also feel like the is that a problem because then the organizer is the governing body well that's kind of like the pga pga right the ufc it's a lot of other sports i mean fee I wish it was that way because then I'd have to negotiate one rights agreement. I wouldn't have to yep. talk to a thousand different race organizers who are like, who are you? Um, maybe ASO would be like, you know what? Thank you for taking Tadej Pogacar, Remco and uh, Jonas Vingegaard to the Middle East to race some crits. We're going to have some amateur French riders win the Tour de France and it's actually going to increase <laughs> our, domestic, <laughs> our domestic rights agreement. So thank you for the yeah. favor. Um, I don't know because... What's per kilo not interesting to watch? What's per kilo is not entertaining. If people do five and a half watts per kilo and it's a great race, that's better to watch than six and a half watts per kilo with one guy winning by 20 minutes. So I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see maybe cycling's actually a bit too juvenile for it in that they don't see the money because they wanted to buy yeah. into the PGA because they see it as an investment. It's an investment fund yeah. buying into the PGA. So Maybe cycling is not in that, in that sphere. But are cycling no, fans I, not way more traditional than golf fans? 
No, no, no. I don't know. Go there. I was, I was literally about to say that probably the reason that one of the reasons that they were so interested in getting into golf yeah. is you are buying your way into the hardest core establishment U.S. <laughs> old money. Like this is the masters or you, there is, there's Jack, there's blazers being worn everywhere. Like that kind of establishment. Right. You know, and I kind of would say that cycling is kind of the, the ugly duckling really when it comes like it's, it's the sort of minnow sport everywhere except for maybe where you live, Benji, but it's not like it doesn't have the same. Uh, shine. Like Sorry, tennis. yeah. Tennis as well. You yeah. know, like tennis is. You take a client to a tennis match, you know, and everyone's happy, and it's a nice, nice event. Uh, so, yeah. Are you telling me that if I take a client to the Carrefour Larbor <laughs> Cobble section in Roubaix, they won't be happy? <laughs> they step in cow shit. It rains on them. A rider, a rider crashes in front of them, starts bleeding. <laughs> I mean, it's an experience. <laughs> Talking about innovative changes in sports, let's talk about gravel. <laughs> yeah, breakaway <laughs> leagues. Is there going to be a gravel breakaway league in America? Because all the there already is. That's is that, that that's what this lifetime Grand Prix is. Is essentially is uh, oh, the, okay. the series of gravel races which they've chained together to make a series out of. And you had, I mean, I've already seen it. So we had Brendan Johnson, Trekkie from Australia, go over to compete in the yeah. lifetime Grand Prix and do those series of events. So he's. Mm-hmm. He and he's that's not he's do, not doing that, you know, as a hobby. He's got a he's got a young daughter. He's got a family. He had a full time job. He, as far as I'm aware, has stopped that to to fly over and race this lifetime Grand Prix series. So it's already it's already started up. So you're gonna it's only gonna continue to grow, especially by how much content we saw come out of that. It it even on YouTube rivals almost anything on the road in terms of the the content's been produced. So that's only gonna continue to grow. So are we gonna are we gonna see an LRCP dirt edition? Like what 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 are you boys thinking about this stuff, mate? That gravel ride we're planning or were planning and then didn't do. <laughs> we should like business wise. Obviously, gravel is a big focus of the brand. So if Benji and I wanted to do ancillary content or yeah. in our own riding little lives, um beside the podcast and it, we were doing gravel that would be attractive to brands with the, the products they're releasing um people are you know new gravel specific group sets so it's clearly a focus of the brands like there was disc breaks disc breaks one i'm sorry jesse i i mourn <laughs> the loss too i also am i know people are like yeah your team you how can you say team rim break you ride a disc brake bike i live in the one country in the world where there's the actual use case for a disc brake road bike but <laughs> unfortunately disc brakes one i feel like gravel now gravel specific products that is the next frontier now of like you got to get this you got to get this you got to get this um and these events are where everyone takes their these events are why you get that bike because if you just me and benji tootling along down the road on a, a fire trail Get just a mount, hardtail mountain bike, or we'll get our. I was using a woman's cyclocross bike that a shop couldn't sell because it was too big. It was a giant one, fit me perfectly, live brava. But oh, you want to go a gravel specific gravel event, and it's a big one. Everyone's going to be there. Maybe that's the push to to purchase these these new products. Um, but I'm not that 
I'm not that keen to do a gravel event. I guess it's a safety thing. Are they safer than a road race or a crit? Based on what I saw from Unbound, it didn't seem too safe at, at the start. The only thing I saw on Twitter about Unbound is people like with ripped open kneecaps and so forth. So I was really? like, oh, oh God, I'm terrible. I think Ty Sonnefeld on Twitter showed like his knee injury. Yeah. Terrifying. But like, and a lot of people like DNFing and so forth early on. It sounds cool to do. I'd love to do... I'd probably just do a, a first time trying a gravel ride first before I do a first time trying a gravel event in the future because I even need to do a road event before I do a gravel event. So it's kind of like the gradual growth in that sense. But I do like the appetite because I, I feel like I've come to this point in my life where I'm like, I want to try stuff. And gravel is something I want to try. A lot of people are like, oh, gravel's so cool. I really like doing gravel riding. But I've never experienced it. So I'm like, what is the reason that people love it? What is the spirit of gravel, as mm. they say? Well, that's what Chris and I are trying to essentially figure out. We've done it. We've chatted about it on the show for a few weeks. <laughs> when we get people on, we, we, the guests, we'll, we'll, we're going to keep asking them about it. Because personally, I, I don't you thought get it. we would say the answer. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with Jesse. I don't get but, it. Like get across to, get across country mountain yeah. bike. Uh, Come on, it is. And I, I thought it was maybe overhyped. That was kind of my take. I think last week or a couple of weeks weeks ago. But when you, we keep seeing the amount of content that came out of Unbound and the brands that are getting behind it, it's clearly it's there's there's something there. There's a constant narrative anytime we talk about it that uh, people in the comments, especially people in the US mm-hmm. in the comments, will say the reason this is happening is because of the death of road events, the death of road even mass participation events the mass participation event has gone off road it's turned into the gravel event it's turned into unbound etc etc and there there's one every week um all over the place so i get that but for you benji i'm going to totally push back forget about it mate stay on your bloody road bike work on your fitness get it up there and you've got you've got so many awesome sportives, local club races, you can get out and do, like, Lege Baston Liege Sportif, that'd be a cracker. You could get around that. Yeah, but um, the thing is, and I've got living where you are. We we would hear this constant thing living here, right, and it used to shit me all the time. All these little races would be, oh, Belgium. Belgium's so cool. It's so awesome. You can race every day and it costs five euro. Oh, it's so awesome. It's so awesome. And I, I hated it. But um, you live in the absolute heart of it. Don't sell out on me, Benji. Don't sell out. <laughs> it's like... All right, rant over. <laughs> what a rant. What a rant. Oh, deep in the heart. But I will say, is it that we're all kind of thinking about stuff that is not necessarily in our neighborhood? As in, for example, I've got a long list of things I want to do from literally... Riding up the outer quadrant next week for a second time in a sunny conditions because I've done it in a rainy conditions and then comparing the conditions to, for example, in a year and a half trying to Everest is already on a on a plan. Like I've got hundreds of ideas listed out, and gravel's on that list because I want to try something different and I, I kind of want to want to see where that goes if I enjoy that or not. You know what? What the one thing is that is not on my list? Any race. I don't know why. Belgian Kermes. I have zero yeah, get him in a pro zero things on the list where it's like competitiveness because I feel like my competition at the moment is against myself and not against others, if that makes sense. Lame. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> 
No, you're wrong because you'll do a race once Don't and you'll you? be like, shit, that was fun. <laughs> what a f- rush. And you'll then you'll you'll get into it. Yeah. yeah. I rode Swift races and that was really fun. But <laughs> I think I'm too scared for doing it outside at the moment. Because my obviously like my technique is not there yet. Stuff like that. Bunch riding is not there yet. So I think the reason that I don't have it planned is because I'm too fearful right now to to have it mm. set out for me. Yeah. Don't you think gravel in these countries you just mentioned, Australia, the UK, America, what do they all share in common? The majority of the public don't like road cycles very much. So first of all, there's a big barrier to training safely on the roads unless, like we did, you just cut your teeth, you know, in the 2000s and 2010s before cycling was that popular on the roads and you just become accustomed to it and then you come to Andorra and you see people riding in the middle of the lane and you're like, are you not aware you're about to die? And they live in this little <laughs> utopia. Um, <laughs> and also the cost of road closures or just not being, I'm pretty sure there was a, a charity ride in the UK that raised millions of pounds for a cancer charity or charity that they couldn't even close the roads for a day. A big historical one in the UK. And so it's a lot easier to, to close a farm road in the middle of who knows where. Uh, so that's number one. And then there's the safety element that it's people who are less comfortable on the road maybe. Uh, yeah, like it's easy to do a gravel ride. So I think they're the factors. But that being said, even in Spain, just down the road, Valverde on the same day as Unbound, Valverde won the Spanish version of Unbound. And there's influences yeah. there. So it's, in Spain, it's being pushed to. He's getting paid a salary by either Canyon or Movistar. He's wearing a Movistar kit to be a gravel privateer. Mm-hmm. Well, not a privateer, for them. So that's what I want to go. That's what I actually want to chat about. So a gravel pro. Mm-hmm. Have have any of you heard numbers on what that looks like financially? No. I couldn't tell you what Valverde's on. If I had to guess, three fifty, four hundred. Yeah. Uh, but it's a real guess. Like he would have been on a, a couple of mil at Movistar as, as a road cyclist. Um. So he's a general ambassador for the team. I don't know. Is it just a bike and like 30 grand for the average ex-pro? Re- I reckon, yeah, that makes sense. A bike, support, and maybe 25 grand, 30 grand for the average ex-pro. I'd be surprised to see more than that except for like, yeah, I'd be really be surprised. I can't think of any names that are, have huge Instagram followings that would merit more than that. I, I, <laughs> I have a feeling it's a lot more than that. Especially in the US with the top guys, Lawrence Tendam, really Setna, they're yeah, they're big, they're freaking big. It has names to be in that small bubble. It's relatively small bubble compared to road. It's they're big. It's weird because like for me as an ex as as, as an act, active cycling fan, not an ex cycling fan, an active cycling fan, these are ex pros to me because I'm seeing this from the road pro cycling perspective. And for me, those riders are retired, but they're obviously not because they're in gravel. They're making money that way. They're racing all the time. Then Dam came top five or something at. <laughs> oh, I watched I Unbound, but <laughs> as in the amount of stuff I could see because there was no broadcast, which I'm used to as road cycling, but it's probably way more difficult to do that for gravel cycling, I would expect. So the, They're superheroes. <laughs> but, um, but the thing is, the, the reason, the thing that I'm still getting my head around is why there's why the money's there is because the road scene's such a a tough one to crack for a, for brands that this up and coming gravel thing is seen as is easier to get into so they just 
decide to throw cash at it as opposed to road? Because you feel like your money doesn't go any go as far on the on the roadside, even though smaller numbers. This is another topic for conversation, Jesse. Is why do brands do the things they do, and sometimes I think they don't make sense. And <laughs> you know, one of those pros you just mentioned, I just looked up his Instagram quickly. You know, he's getting he's getting like three hundred likes on photos, like a thousand five hundred likes on race day photos, yeah. which is just nothing. It's like, like, yeah, it shows mm. that. But the brands yeah. think it's important. <laughs> A lot of social media influencers that were ex-pros or, I don't know, let's say you're an ex-pro in, in road cycling, for example. You build up a following, you've got 100k followers on Instagram, stuff like that. But like Patrick says, you've got 100 likes on your posts and so forth. A lot of brands look at that follow number and are like, damn, that's someone that we should have promoter stuff. Yeah. And I've actively seen a process from a brand within cycling that was looking for influencers to promote their stuff. And they were actively looking at the amount of followers and so forth and not at the actual reach of the stuff they do in terms of conversion rate towards likes, comments, and interactions. Because that's where it's set up, I feel like. Because that shows how much people care about the stuff they post in the first place. Because you can easily have an ex-pro that could become completely irrelevant the second they retire. Well, there's some others that are such a personality that people look up to that they're going to be following whatever they do for the rest of their lives. And there's such a division between those two things. Like, I bet, for example, Patrick, you you probably get 15 to 20 times the amount of interaction that you that pro rider or ex-pro rider or that gravel rider, whatever, has. And well, just on Instagram, I have less than half. I have less than half the followers. My average post gets probably five x the likes and engagement. Um, yeah, but I'm just I'm not doing product showcase. And as to your, this is a question for you, Chris and Jesse. If your podcast, this podcast, did the same exact views, but had triple the subs, do you think it'd be easier for you to get partners? And how much easier? Without doubt. Yeah. I literally have no those exact conversation. No? But but in reality, it's the same. Oh, audience. in reality, 100%. 100%. But, but it, it's, it's it, you, I can't even, anyway, I don't go too much into this, but like I can't even get in the door because of subscription numbers. So I know you said you're not going to jump into it, but I'm asking a question anyway because why not? When it comes to like, partnerships and so forth for the Nero show, for example, do you actively lo go looking for partners and putting your foot in the door yourself? Or do you kind of like hope that they will come your way as a following of the fact that it's a fucking great show? Uh, both. Um, now, I will admit that in terms of going out ourselves, it's been in the cycling industry mm -hmm. just because I don't know... I don't have the number of the guy who runs Manscaped or whatever the you know those th those sort of brands are. So I, I am I am I suppose waiting to receive those and have received a couple of those. Um, but in the cycling space, which and I've got connections and things from obviously working with the team and trying to get sponsors, so brands and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's it's not it, it's not it's a waste of time. From from the perspective of of dealing with 
um, cycling people. And again, I've talked about this in the past, but a lot of that could just be um, regional bias. I would say if you had to rate our level of uh, effort in terms of getting a partner or a sponsor, I would say it's relatively quite low. It's almost like a a recreational... Oh, this would be interesting. Let's see what the... Just to dabble (laughs) in the world of it. We're not actively like spending hours and hours a week hunting... Uh, that's not but quite true. You shouldn't have that's to. That's not quite true. Yeah, no, oh. I, I, I do. I mean, I have, I have quite a few. I have quite a few really what I would regard as quite good decks mm-hmm. that that go out to that go out to people. Yeah. But it's not going out to hundreds of people. I'm saying if someone put a gun to your head and say, "Go find a sponsor," no, but yeah. there's not a yeah. hundred brands. Yeah. It's not a hundred brands. But I think the big challenge, and you're right in this, Jesse, is when it gets to the next stage because the the deck quote unquote, will start a conversation, but it's that next negotiation yeah. or thing that I do get a bit of, oh, I can't be fucked with this. Like, because the low ball you so, like, it's just, it's like, what's the point? I might as well just not <laughs> buy coffees for a couple of weeks and that's that's as much as this read is worth. Like, are you kidding me? And I'm, I'm kind of a bit over the whole trying to sell what you're doing to someone who doesn't get yeah. you. Because if you don't, if if they don't get you, then fuck you. Really, is is my kind of thing. Because that relationship will always be me proving to them that you're worth what I know this is worth. That's basically the point I was trying to make. Because like, I feel like the brands are looking at such a tra- traditional way of advertising within the cycling space that they don't necessarily see the content creator side as much as they should be, because. If I was a brand in cycling and I saw, and I've got equipment and so forth, I would I would look at the Nero show and I would be like, okay, those guys have a lot of following. And that seems like a perfect space to do it because you two are personalities on that channel and people trust your opinion because you're brutally honest on that podcast. And therefore, that seems like a good place to, to do that on. And I feel like the marketing people that are in these brands don't necessarily understand the cycling industry enough. Do you think... There is a bit of, um, oh shit! I'm not sure what they're gonna say. <laughs> not gonna touch that. Maybe potentially. That's what I always think with the cycling podcast. Like they were all, you know, like Daily Telegraph journalists. They're a little bit older than me and Benji. You know, I think sometimes, you know, brands. If the marketing person isn't a hardcore fan of the podcast, they might just, oh, who are you? Click on the first YouTube video. It's two guys who look like they're in their early 20s in their in their house and they're like oh <laughs> is this really like we're going to put our brand on this like maybe they think that um so yeah it could and and that's where maybe you know if you maybe a bit older so I've, there's a bit of a disadvantage there maybe that's also maybe in my head um but yeah i think some of the brands are struggling to delve through what's real like, because podcasts is no visible metrics. What's the actual engagement? Um, who is Chris Miller and Jesse Coyle? Like, because this, your show right now is probably, I can't see your podcast numbers, but I can see because of YouTube numbers and the comments on the YouTube numbers, how many views it's getting. It's a top five weekly pod, cycling podcast in the world. Yeah. And there's Easily. no way they treat you that way. They'd be like, this is just like a hobby that you two are doing for fun. 
So is some of this... <laughs> Which you might be okay. doing at the moment. It might be the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel that some of this podcast stuff is a bit fake. And by that I mean, like, there's, there's no, like proper metric for analysis no. from from what I can gather. And all the, the separate podcast players have their own analysis tools or um, ranking tools. And you can seemingly kind of create whatever narrative you want from, from a podcast number. And it's also not – because you don't have a comment section, there, you're not, it feels like you're not um, accountable as such to your audience yep. in a way. And some of these these – I've seen some podcasts, specifically in the cycling world, to, to claim that they're quite popular and they're just on on podcast platforms. And I'm like, well, how do you know? Like, how, how, what, what tool are you using to this? And how are you actually engaging with your audience? So I kind of can see why some brands be like, ah, oh, no, we're not, not too sure about that. Yeah, it's a huge problem. It's cost us so much. Like, because if a YouTube viewer is a view, What's a podcast listen? Mm. You've got a different hosting platform. Not all of them attract. And then it's very, very difficult. And then the legacy podcasts, which are the ones that have been around for ages, they just have the accumulated passive audience. So their numbers might be bumped up a little bit, but how much is their active audience? And there is a, it's pretty easy to tell. Like if you go to LRCP Twitter or our Twitter or our Instagram, and that's why podcast should have a supporting youtube channel because there's that's the barometer it's like yep. okay there's an audience here this makes sense but you know when we tweet out the podcast it's not like people react to it and engage with it so there's clearly an audience there so there are metrics but that's asking the brand then to do an extra level of of maybe analysis and yeah it could it's a little bit of the the wild west as well so um they might be thinking, well, how if we're just doing brand a brand awareness, which we're not going to be able to track with direct conversions, we're really relying on these numbers to be to be accurate. Um, and we got burned last time, so we're out on podcasts for now. Yeah, and so I feel like that's is so you just said um, I got burned. So was there like a generation of? I, I feel like this is something that is is a, we're facing the reality of this now. Mm-hmm. Like there was this. I don't know, this generation of podcasts that have kind of fucked it up for everyone, like took a lot of sponsorship money and maybe didn't do anything with it? There was a marketing person I spoke to and they didn't advertise on the podcast, the RCP, and he said, listen, numbers look great, demos look great, audience alignment looks great, but we advertised the podcast before and we sort of got burned by it, didn't work out and... um we just we consider it too risky and i was like wow okay and so yeah and not maybe not just podcast chris maybe just all sort of media because right now money's tight like it's tight and i'm not a salesperson you're not a salesperson it's not what i'm good at i kind of like you if someone says justify yourself i'm a little bit like come on the numbers already justified but um i gotta change that i gotta change that's my my my, you gotta be a salesperson but the money is tied in the market right now. There's layoffs at big companies in the cycling industry. So, um, yeah, it's just a really, really tough time at the moment for everybody that's relying on uh, advertising revenue. I guess that's why Escape went with the uh, the member model. 
it's it's also noticeable, for example, let's say, for example, there's a brand out there and I contact a brand and I see, okay, I use that product. I actually kind of want them to sponsor my content. So I jump into their DMs on social media. I'm like, so this is what I've got going on. Are you guys interested to collaborate? Let's say about 70 to 60, 60 to 70% probably don't respond. But the 30 to 40 that do respond, there's a secondary step, like you say, which is that extra effort to do something. Sometimes that's a call. Sometimes that is an email or something that you need to send something through or the other way around, their interest and so forth. And I feel like in that regard, brands sometimes just completely turn off the second that they realize, okay, I just realized we're going to have to pay for something. <laughs> Which <laughs> isn't that super obvious in the first yeah. place? <laughs> yes, yes. We're more than happy to send half a dozen, don't do it, journalists <laughs> to a press junket to write a specs article about a new release of their up and coming thing to put it in a piece of paper that no one will buy. So, are you guys all working uh, <laughs> on online do you, do you guys do any work in person or is it pretty much 100 percent online benji's coming here for the tour yeah um does that count in person or you, you mean Except, like yeah the work essentially is still online because i guess still that's the uh, yeah a little online. bit of in person but essentially that's yeah uh still still online <laughs> just yeah just interested yeah benji i guess it depends you know because the podcast the main stuff land recycling podcasts me and patrick everything's online when it comes to producing and so forth yes me going there is also to put it online and so forth. But occasionally, if we see something in cycling, let's say there's an event, if I'm in the UK, I went to Ruler Live, for example, at the end of last year. Networking there, I guess, could be considered working in the field or going to a cycling race together, which we do about once a year. <laughs> that could be a working in person. I don't know. And also, like, you on the side have your own YouTube channel, which is obviously the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel, which has the, the recaps of all the races and so forth. That's also online. I, I've got my channel, which is basically me doing my cycling journey from being an overweight chubby dude on a bike to a not-so-shit and not-so-terrible cyclist, hopefully in the future. That's the aim there. I think that's gradually in a place where mm. I have to do more stuff in person. Like, to create content that is not necessarily just talking on the podcast, I need to do more stuff in person. I need to yeah, yeah. find more content out there. That makes sense? And the reason why I was I asked is because, uh, Chris, you mentioned that a year ago we had just landed in Europe and I was managing the team over there to race and how quickly that time's gone. And I thought, wow, like that was such an awesome achievement. Like, look at what look at what I did. Um, that was great. Uh, but then I have done <laughs> stuff since then. We've done the show where arguably we're, we're reaching way more people. I hope the viewers sort of like what we're putting out, and that yeah. should be something that's satisfying to me. But really, it's the thing I did in person a year ago, which means more to me. And then, so for you guys who are doing all your work online, does that do you get the same satisfaction or? Do you wish you had more stuff in person? Does that affect you mentally? Well, so that, that was one of the big, big reasons I wanted to continue with Yumbo because I, I grew up playing team sports. I grew up in person team sports, like rugby, cricket, tennis, like all year round, two sports at a time, going to you know, school, 
a group of mates weekend all the time. I moved to Andorra with my wife and my dog. Okay, I got I got mates here who are pros, but you know <laughs> they all went to the Giro. Um, the young, nothing will reply like. And Jay's a bit. <laughs> that, was, that was his idea about the breakaway league with the, the Saudi money. Um, oh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Go on. The, the work with Yumbo, going to Catalonia on stage one, being in the car, and then when they actually won the stage and going crazy in the car and everyone feeling good and that morale is really hard to replicate online. Like Benji and I, with LRCP, and with his channel and with Lantern Rouge's YouTube channel, like it's a crazy success story, but there's no like victory. Like say the Tour de France preview we do next week. Okay, it, it does 25% more views than last year and listens. That's really good. Like, we're not going to have a party. We're not going to get pumped up. You don't up. do high fives? We're not going to get pumped like, up. You know? Nah, um, maybe I should. <laughs> maybe I should be more American. Um, you know what I mean? And that's why I do... That in-person thing that you're probably missing, Jesse, and remember, you know, it. I do like to have both. Uh, and I, I'm not someone who grew up completely digital as well. Um, I'm kind of the transition generation. So uh, well, both is good. Obviously, you, you need online for scale and reach. Like, you need that, but a bit of both, I think, is good. I am completely different than you in that, I think. <laughs> as in... When it comes to work life, being online and so forth, I don't necessarily mind and I do feel rewarded by stuff that happens online. For example, if the podcast does well, I do feel rewarded about that. But I also have the opposite side where while my personal life is occasionally rather online in the sense that people that follow the podcast can follow my personal life on all my social media so they know what the fuck is happening in my life. On the other hand, I do feel like my personal life is still that bubble where I can enjoy the achievements in my personal life on the side. And that's a division for me, personal and work necessarily. Even though, let's be honest about it, I love cycling so much that half of the time it doesn't really feel like work. <laughs> Sometimes the Tour de Romandie and so forth does feel like work. No offense to the Romandie, but that's the really cover this year. <laughs> well, well, see, I don't work anymore. <laughs> Called it. All offense intended. Do a better race. But that's kind, of, that's kind of the part for me where my achievements in my personal life are super important to me. But on the other hand, I do feel rewarded by the online stuff. And yes, there's moments like, for example, we went to Budapest last year at the start of the Giro, for example. It's really rewarding. And maybe that's a factor that you guys haven't noticed yet but when you meet people that follow your stuff in person yeah it becomes so much more real because you don't realize that there was there was someone for example that followed the podcast but also like said i follow everything you write on twitter and i was like oh god that's terrifying (laughs) (laughs) and she was like she was like super hyped about that oh can i have a picture and so forth and you don't realize that once you're recording a podcast, once when when I post a shit take on Twitter, for example, like I don't realize that when it's happening, but when it's like in front of you, when that person is in front of you and telling you that, you're like, "Fuck, we actually did something here." <laughs> Imagine you. So I ha- think you're you averaging, averaging Chris thirty thousand and more than thirty thousand episodes. Imagine an auditorium of forty five thousand people <laughs> listening to you guys doing the podcast. Would you you be would be like the adrenaline you would be insane. Um, and that's why even meeting one person in real life, they say, Hey, are you, are you that person? And it's like, 
that's i agree benji great for bringing up that's the that's really really rewarding um and you guys could go to unbound next year and 10 50 100 people will be like love the show love talking shit yeah 100 you want to talk about a bit of training jesse is there any uh youtube videos left to make actually I haven't done one for about two months. I'm done. That's it. I've, well, that's the Everything question. to be said, I've said <laughs> that I wanted to say. And now I'm like, uh, crickets on my YouTube channel. Like, uh, I'm going to fight back on that, mainly because I'm doing it at the moment, but also because I feel like I think it's underrated that people want to see content from different people. As in, if I watch someone cycling training, I see someone cycling training, I'm like, oh, he's doing it that way. He's going through that experience that way. What is the other person doing, for example? Oh, this guy is super fit. He doesn't look, he looks nothing like me. Oh, there's this guy over there that is overweight, kind of like myself. How is his motivation going? How does he keep it up? How is he able to get out of bed, get on the bike every single time? And I think, therefore, it is important that different people do the same kind of content because not every person will look at content and mm. say, that's me. That makes sense? I think journey content. Yeah, journey content. But like, what, what can Dylan Johnson do now? Yeah. Well, I mean, you said it, Jesse. Like, he's basically just <laughs> wiped the wiped the table with every, mm-hmm. every touch point that any cyclist has thought about in terms of their training. It's like, oh, there it is. And there's all the literature on it. And there's the results of it. Okay. Basically, basically all that's left is a proper doping program. More place, more dates for cycling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's literally all that's left. Who's doing I that? See, but he, see, even Dylan. <laughs> yeah. So just on Dylan Johnson, even he's changed now because he's he's almost moved into the like a, a race influencery sort of character now. Maybe sees that's where he's maybe that's yes. just where his passion is. So he's doing that. But from yeah, from the YouTube side. But I do think you're right. Like and Benji, like your journey is is far more relatable yeah, than sure. really anything we could do i think you're in a unique position to do that you're not getting as fit as as fast as that norcal too fella that's that's, you know (laughs) come on i don't mind i I like my tempo i like doing it a healthy way i don't know if it does not healthy i haven't seen every single video of uh of norcal to be honest but it's kind of where i'm at a point where i'm also like on one end i want to make it a very gradual journey so that people realize that like it won't happen in one second. Like, I won't lose 10 kgs in a month. That's impossible. Maybe if I do something really unhealthy, that's possible. But in a healthy way, I probably can't lose 10 kgs in a month. So that's one thing. But also when it comes to the actual learning process, if I'm starting, I don't know fuck all of how to train. So I'm going through the process of training. In in my videos, I won't pretend that I know anything about training. I, will, I, I literally, on purpose sometimes write down how I would do it. And then if, for example, someone says before I recorded a video, well, you should do it that way. I'll first like try it the way I said it because I'm like to show people what happens if it, if you do the wrong thing. That makes sense? Because like I want to go through it in the most natural way possible to show the process of like making mistakes towards a better, a better healthy life in cycling, my, my cycling journey. And yeah, the... I don't know. I don't know where my point was going, but that was my take. <laughs> Are you approaching it as such a gamer yeah. as well? Like, Achievement unlocked. That <laughs> you're, yeah, exactly. And like that's quite different. Like most people, and myself as well. Like 
just everyone just started writing. Like there wasn't there wasn't any yeah, thoughts of this being this mass journey to success, unlocking achievements as you went along. It's also it's just, it needs to be content there eh? because on one I've always got the yeah. issue in life that whenever I'm doing something because I've got this content creator thing in me that I've always wanted to make content as a passion. So I always try to make content out of everything I'm doing, which is probably an unhealthy lifestyle. But when it comes to the cycling journey, I didn't do it last year when I lost 20 kgs. And after that, I kind of regretted it. But on the other end, I also knew that I didn't have the confidence to be on screen on a bike during that process in the first place. So I grew into that confidence and started doing it in January. And now I'm in this place where I'm doing it, but I'm like... I want it to be a gradual journey, but every episode needs to be entertaining to the point that I can have a title that is click-through rate well. <laughs> I need to have a topic that spices it up by the end of the episode so that the storytelling of the episode is good. So, for example, my next video is an update on my training so far. If I just go over my, my last three months of training... It's just a, a video of me talking to the screen about my training. Meanwhile, <sighs> I found two challenges to fit in. Do that the training, training recap schedule. one, so then I can roast it. I can't. Re I can't roast oh, you God. riding up a climb. I can roast you putting you, what you've done out there. Well, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking about your content already. See, <laughs> you just got to do, do it again, mine. Jesse. GCN style. Just make the same videos again. That's what Dylan has to do. Dylan Johnson. No, because they do like top five, top five tips for, and they still get big views. The same video for what they've done before. So, I mean, listen, it, you kind of don't want to do that as like a creator. You, you don't want to just make the same video again. And I was even thinking, okay, like say, say I did a trainer roads podcast. I'm not sure the direction of that. Say I wanted to come in with a competitor and the, co-host was matthew hedgeburg the mm -hmm. chief performance manager at yumbo visma like you can't get more, a bigger source of authority in terms of training i don't know i was thinking what would we after week three what would we talk about yeah but we've already told you how to set your zones we've already told you how to eat like what is the runway of that pod when it comes to creating content in that sense the stuff you were saying for example all oh, the ideas are are over I disagree because I think that the platforms are changing, as in the way people want the content to be given to them is changing. As in, obviously, you've got the shorts coming in, how you can transfer certain stuff to shorts that I'm not 100% sure of in that specific content, but I do feel like there's always an iteration of making the content better from what it was before, the pacing mm. of the video, stuff like yeah. that. I guess that's what they, I mean, that's what Trainer Road do. You're just saying the same thing over and over again. And the audience probably still appreciates that. I mean, you can hear something once, but if it's something that's ringing true for you, you can watch the same sort of genre of video 30 times over and still enjoy it. But like, for example, with the, the, um, the, that training director thing you're talking about, Lantern, like it's not necessarily what his tips to put out. It's his brain. So a video of him analyzing something is what I would find interesting. Not necessarily just saying what I can read in a, a training book, you know, in uni first year of university. But what's his, his, what's his training brain, his analytical brain applying that to a case study, which I guess is what the Trainer Road podcast kind of is doing. It's just case study stuff. But none of those guys are really yeah know too much about what they're talking about. But if you got a, someone with a PhD and 15 years of welter experience analyzing Benji's training, 
There's a video I'd watch. Well, oh, that doesn't necessarily mean they know true. what they're talking yes. about. <laughs> Plenty of overtrained world tour pros. That's the thing <laughs> as well. And also... Uh, plenty of pros also who turn off the gum and go do some their own training because they don't trust yeah. what the program says. No, that, that, was, I was, that was the other thing I was going to catch myself on and say generally these guys have PhDs are so far down a specific rabbit hole in <laughs> one specific area of training and that's why they're not, by definition, yeah. coaches because coaches need to take in a breadth of stuff and give best practice, whereas some of these guys, even though they're academically super tuned on yeah. as coaches they're they're not always the best because they're so they're too niche in in one specific area of sports science and that's generalization there are obviously some really smart guys that coach well but generally you find when you've been just stuck in research for decades i'll give you an example of that but you can probably guess the writer but yeah one one trainer or coach he's just zone two aerobic zone two aerobic that's his thing Zone two, zone two, zone two, zone two. You're going to do three months in the off-season. You're going to do 30 hours a week. Zone two. And zone two, by the way, upper zone two for a pro is really hard. That's They're going fast. Like for a bigger guy, it's like 320 watts. 35K an hour. Um, yeah. Do that for 30 hours a week, right? And you do no over-unders. You do no sprint work. And then I've seen riders go to that team. They've had a punch before. And some of the riders that I think follow that program closely, wow, his kick's not as good as he used to be. Wow, he can't respond to surges so well. Um, he seems to just be able to, he's, he can ride threshold for a long time. Don't get me wrong, his FDP is fantastic, but in race. So that stuff really happens even at world yeah. tour level, Jesse, exactly what you're saying. <laughs> Thought it would, but yeah. Do you get any pushback about not having a history in the sport <laughs> in terms and, and commenting on it? Or is that a rabbit hole you don't really want to go oh, down? No, I mean, not really. Yeah. Not, like, not on the pod, because why would yeah. you listen to someone for 45 minutes to then say, you're an idiot, you guys are slobs who never raced? Like, it's like, well, you just wasted 45 minutes of your time listening to us. Who's the idiot? Um, so no, the pod is like, if you're here by now, then you, you think there's some value in it. Twitter, yeah, yeah. Twitter a bit different. <laughs> it's an open <laughs> forum for people to spread their thoughts. <laughs> I like... Um, it's, All right, but yeah, go, Benji. I, I need I need help with Twitter, but go it, on. It's visibly the the people that don't necessarily consume the content that you make thoroughly. They just see one tweet that they're triggered by, and they respond like, "Okay, and how many Grand Tours have you won?" Something like that, and then then Patrick can respond, "I've won too. <laughs> but <laughs> like, there there's that factor. But I would indeed say that on the podcast, it's not really an not that many people i think i've seen like one or two comments like that in the last two years or something so that's definitely not there but yeah twitter is a you, you stopped twitter again or what i'm really disappointed that you disappeared again yeah you came in hot <sighs> and i haven't seen you recently i'm disappointed i got scared boys i got scared <laughs> i got scared off it it's there's there's like there's a there's a there's a lingo to it there's a yeah, uh, for starters, I just shouldn't have said anything. I should have just listened to Jesse in the first place yep. and just been a bystander yep. and just sat back. But then people start, you know, people start asking you questions, ask, asking your opinions on things. And I just sort of started throwing a few things in. And then I noticed this thing that doesn't seem to happen anywhere else or any other platform, but I get mentioned <laughs> in things. And then I'm then, am I then meant to give my two cents on the thing I'm then mentioned on? Is it rude? Am I, is it rude not to, to, to 
reply to the thing. And then I feel ultimately, guys, ultimately, I feel like the people on Twitter are just a lot smarter than me or the way they seem to like portray themselves on Twitter. I write my tweets and it like, oh, that sounds dumb. And there's just no value add to it. So I've, I've completely backed out of it. I, I got myself into a little bit of a thing with some, some people in Melbourne at one point. So I, I, really? that, that ultimately scared me off. Oh, yeah, our, our, our mates down there. Um, but I don't know. So, Benji, you're the biggest sort of sun in my orbit when it comes to, to Twitter. Like, how did this happen? I'd say that there's a some type of meta to it, but it's not it's nothing crazy necessarily. I think it's it's actually the simple fact is that you need to be overly active. As in, I'd say two years ago, let's just say three years ago, I had about in January, three years ago, I'd say 3,000 followers on Twitter, for example, 2,000, 3,000, because I wasn't necessarily posting daily stuff about cycling yet. And then I also with the podcast growing and so forth, saw some people following and I realized I should just start tweeting about cycling every day. And there are months that I had 3,000 tweets per month. And 3,000 tweets is actually quite a bit if you think about it, which is I became overly self-conscious about it being too much to the point that I now tweet less. But I still tweet a bit too much. But it's also noticeable that the more you tweet, the more likely a person in the cycling industry is going to have your tweet on it. Because person A might not like your first tweet, but they might agree with your second or third tweet. And they might like that one, which means that it comes up the timeline of of person C, for example. And initially, the initial growth was related to me being overly active. As simple as that. As being commenting on literally everything that happened in cycling. Some people like that. Some people hate that. But hey... I, I never proclaim to be like an expert or anything. I, I let the people that are on Twitter decide if they agree or not agree with my stuff. I think the other factor is not being a truly terrible person. I'd like to think that I'm not a terrible person. So I think a lot that's of people... That's why my Twitter account, that's why I have half, less than half the followers. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're not yeah. a terrible person. People can say through people it. People might think yeah. so Tom, sometimes, but in reality, you're not. On one end, you can be very controversial. I think you need to be about 5% controversial and 95% overly vanilla. And it's not that yeah. I'm doing that necessarily on purpose. I just have boring opinions sometimes. And I think that balance of... What's your most oh, controversial yeah. tweet? Probably the Yumbo <laughs> announcement. <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you have a go at Eddie Merckx at one yeah, point? Yeah, but oh, a lot no, people that's, agree. <laughs> that's not controversial. People agree with that. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, like, I don't... I only post when I think I have a spicy opinion. That's what I post. So all my tweets are, one I used to in 2024 will be better than Pogaccio. He'll leave the Tour de France for UAE. And then people just see this guy's just a lunatic. Like, <laughs> I actually do believe he will leave, You've the, never won a grand he tour. Will leave the Tour de France for UAE, mainly because Pogaccio will do the Giro. That's a separate question. But yeah, I just... Um, there is a way to phrasing your tweets in such a way that they get interpreted in another way a good way and I have never learnt that and I think a lot of sometimes the message of what I'm saying is because I'll just tweet it like I'm messaging a WhatsApp yeah. to someone yeah. to someone who knows me who knows what I mean yeah. and I don't phrase it for the person who doesn't know me who doesn't know what I mean because they're not your audience maybe the people that see it Agreed. Um, and they don't know where you're coming from so like the French when I said why is we didn't really get onto the Netflix series um, it's a good segue why is all the Netflix series mostly in French? The narration is French 
it's by Netflix France. I was posing the question is, is this a good business decision? That's all I was saying, basically. The hate I wasn't got, saying, mate. how dare the Tour de France in be, be in French. And then all the people coming in, uh, the Anglophones, they cannot bear to watch something with subtitles for once. It's like, hey, I like the loop in the Netflix series. That was great. Um, the, the, the robber. And is so, that <laughs> the dude that steals Louvre paintings? Yeah, yeah, that was epic. I'm sure it's probably. <laughs> I thought that was great. I love Emily it. Paris, Emily embarrasses your French um, Netflix show. That's, I didn't mean that. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I can't that, believe you went from culture. How did you go from Lupin to Emily and Paris? <laughs> they're both high, they're both high culture, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean. And so it's just a way of being interpreted, and I don't know how to do it. Maybe I just don't care enough to do it. Um, but I don't even, I don't know where Twitter's going with Musk. I feel like the Musk killing Twitter. If anything, kind of, it's I more heard relevant. That. It's kind of keeping on keeping on now. Can we have a quick Netflix chat? I know you, you guys talked about it for an hour. Sorry, but Jesse didn't watch an episode, Jesse. so I wasn't allowed to talk to. to, to. I've no. So why I've didn't no you watch it, watching it? Why, why didn't you watch it? I hated the Movistar one. You're not a cyclist. I can probably already tell you what the show is going to be like. It doesn't show what? any part of cycling that. <laughs> I'm interested in. I already know what happened at the race because I watched the race. It, I'd rather spend an hour watching YouTube. Yeah. I, that's it. I'm just not interested. He's kind of not wrong, but then is the argument that he's not the audience? I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot. And I, even I've said that and me and Benji have said that and I've thought about it more and I, I'm watching The Last Dance at the moment. Surely people who watched the Jordan era of the Bulls who watched every game, who are ardent basketball fans today, enjoyed that series. And I think they did. And I'm sure someone who... Uh, my wife would enjoy that series as a series about a competitive person and just the whole story behind it, the challenges, etc. And so it does both. And so isn't that the benchmark? Sorry, can I just... Did you guys enjoy watching it? I... I enjoyed watching it, but as a hardcore cycling fan, there are gripes that I have with it. But is that on. is that you as a commentator? Isn't that you as a commentator having gripes rather than Jesse's just asking? I mean, like, you. should I watch it? Am I going to enjoy spending eight hours of my week watching it? No. Okay. No. <laughs> That's what no, I thought. No. That's why I didn't watch it. I enjoyed it from the perspective of I haven't seen cycling look that that nice. Like yeah. I, I do get caught up a little bit in the just the visuals. And it's shot beautifully. Like the shots of the Champs-Élysées, I don't know what drone or whatever they're using up there, but that was just sensational. I mean, the bike footage shit, shitted me, but that's because it was I'm just someone who edits bike footage a bit. You guys talked about fake narratives and things on, on your show. And also because there were real narratives that could have been in there that they didn't use. Like, spoilers, Jesse. <laughs> The the Betiol versus uh, <laughs> Paulus thing from stage four. In the, did you watch a couple stage of the Tour de France where Betiol started uh -huh. attacking uh -huh. while Paulus was ahead and basically removed the potential chances of Paulus having yellow jersey and so forth? That was major drama. Like, and Netflix has recorded that drama according to Vauders on Ruler Life. He said that. So I'm kind of like, why is that Went not in the show? Tears on the bus. Yeah. There's tears <laughs> on the bus. Why is that not on the show? While, for example, they have to invent the plot of there actually being a fight between two riders for the podium where it's like minutes difference between the two. I'm like, 
I'd rather... Obviously, it's not comparable because it's a different team and they had to get every single team in the continent so far when we can talk about whether the format is actually good and whether they should have predetermined riders before the race starts and so forth. But all that aside, I feel like I don't want an extra fake narrative if you can give me an actual drama that happened and that I didn't see in the show. Well, this, they admitted this, I'm pretty sure, this, this week to producers. They made it more vanilla because they wanted team buy-in for the next year and to build trust. And not just yeah, with okay. the teams they have on board, but with UAE and Pagacha, who's less the Verstappen, the big fish they want on. And so, no, I looked through that, no one looks bad at any moment, really. Yeah. No one looks bad. And I'm sorry, people look bad across three weeks. Good people, good people get angry, get upset, make mistakes. And that's what I was looking for, that stuff I haven't seen in a Vell on YouTube video, I haven't seen in my own highlight cut, I yeah. haven't seen in a team's behind-the-scene documentary their press officer approved. I was looking for the raw stuff of someone getting mad, upset, and then resolving that. You know, sorry, man, like that was my mistake. Um, and I feel like they went really softly, softly, so they didn't alienate the team's riders. Because, listen, these riders are already pretty stand... Like, they're not like the F1 guys who are like... Oh, the, the Netflix booms mm. there. Let's actually say something interesting <laughs> deliberately. Or you know, yeah, I hate my teammate. Yeah, yeah, like to wind him up. It's like you see Roglic, she, the first thing they say, can you state your name? He's like, this is so stupid. And he probably, it's like, well, okay. Like they're probably working with pretty difficult material too. 100%. You know this, you know this, Lance. And like cyclists, pro cyclists are so self-conscious. They're all... Everyone's walking on eggs, yep. absolute eggshells. There is absolute, there is very, very few exceptions to this rule. Like Peak Sagan, not walking on eggshells. That's, there's not many others. Like, and to then expect these people to be charismatic, not only charismatic, but then also show the warts of war in that circumstance, like I, I heard you guys talking that Van Art was pissed off after that, that yeah. he wasn't shown in a, in a good light. I mean, come yeah, on. I mean, that, that was, was like the softest yeah. little dabs about, about him and, and ultimately drive to survive works because you have rivals and the rivals and sometimes the rivals are teammates. It's even better. Yeah. And, Unfortunately, I, I don't know. It's just the nature of the sport. Maybe it's the nature of like the year-to-year -year contracts. No one wants to, you know, make a make a noise. Um, and I look, I realise that she is not the audience. But I sat down with my nine-year-old daughter who watched Drive to Survive with me, and by the end of it, was like, I want a an orange car because <laughs> I want to be like on the team uh, McLaren, like that kind of. Oh, so cool! Knows the drivers. One episode in, like halfway through it, she was off. She was like, what? I'm doing something Bissiger else. The didn't get her. <laughs> mm, funny that. I, th I think they thought yeah. the Fabio crash thing was like the big going to get people in. And in my opinion, it was like, yeah, it, we, it, it, didn't hit, it didn't hit. Like for a cycling fans, it's also no. too late for that to hit. So is that the one that you'd expect the new cycling fans to, to have the hit? But then again... They show the crash three times before they talk about what happened. So I'm like, at that point, you're like, we've seen it three times. Like, we, we know what happens. Yeah. And unfortunately, the reality is Jakobsen is a stoic yeah. 
individual, and he you know he had to be to come back from that. You got to be that character of just focused. No, crashing is not a thing to me anymore. I am focused. You know, if if he was Daniel Ricardo, he would have had a different reaction on camera. Unfortunately, is that also a consequence of how the public acts when a certain writer said something, even a bit confident in an interview? Because, for example, when Remco was saying, "I'd like to win a Grand Tour," for example, in my life, when he was like starting off, people were roasting him that he was saying that at such a young age. Like, and 100%. and then they were coming to this point, and we're like, "Oh, we we're kind of like okay." Where's the where's the drama? Why is everybody so so stoic, so boring in interviews and so forth? Like I can't remember the last time that I heard a really interesting interview of a writer, and it's because they're so not necessarily they don't necessarily need to be professionally media trained. They're also media trained by the the way the public responds to every small step they misstep in the interviews. I was gonna say, I think Jay Vine does the best interviews. Oh, what's the best thing about winning the stage? Yeah, the the, the bonus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean he does pretty. He I does good that. ones. Uh, Jack does pretty. The Australians like Jack does pretty good ones. Like he gives, he'll actually answer the question properly. Um, but I think Simon Yes in 2019 before the tour or Giro yeah. said, "My my rivals, they should be shitting themselves." <laughs> and in the first TT lost four minutes. Everyone clowned the fu- everyone clowned the fuck out of him. And listen, I wish everyone said, listen, if I was half good at cycling, if I was just like an average world tour pro, I would talk so much shit. Like, it would be, look at NBA players. In the NBA, the, the whole culture is of trash talk. And from Jordan, you look at the last dance, that's all it's about trash talk and um, creating rivals within the game. And, you know, one guy on minimum wage, minimum contract, 10th guy off the bench, if he hits one shot in a game, he'll start talking trash. Whereas, yeah, cycling, very conservative. Even Cav, he had a mechanical in the ZLM tour the other day, took him out of the sprint. The, he saw the cameras coming over. He stopped his conversation with the mechanic yeah. so that him talking about what went wrong with his cassette or derailleur was not picked up. And this, he's, this is Cavendish mm. in his final year, and he still is like instant automatic reflex zip lips when that camera came around. You know the you know the world's changed when a big bunch sprint finishes and the the first three or four guys who cross the line are like patting each other on the back, <laughs> congratulating each other. Like you know, twenty years ago that would have been a very different conversation for the eight hundred meters past the finish line as it is now. And look, don't get me wrong, sportsmanship massive part of of sport, huge part of me growing up as a there is always there's always that moment at the end of a race or end of a game where you go up and shake the hand of the opponent. I'd just love to see a bit more fuck you at the end of it instead of the Definitely amongst the there's juicy the, guys. There's the whole Where's the yeah. look? Where's the look moment? Um there's this whole thing with Van Art and um Vanderpol. Oh. oh yeah. Whereas like the race finishes and everyone's waiting for the oh will they congrat will they shake each other's hand? And then then that's the it's always after any one of the races that those guys do, there'll be that post of the two of them shaking hands or something and being like, oh, sportsmanship. I'd just love to see the opposite once. The problem would be the commentators The commentators wouldn't know what to do. They'd be stunned mullets if anything actually happened interesting because the commentators, they, they wait for that moment where something nice happens because it's easy to commentate on. Whereas if there was anything half interesting, I think half the commentators would be, uh, 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 yeah. uh, uh, know what to do. I think they'd criticize them actually. Yeah. Exactly. Like Mads Pedersen once gave her, he was really pissed off in a race 
The Giro, maybe. Really cranky. I think he'd missed out on He'd got pipped in the sprint the day before. Interviewer asked a really bad question. Maz just gave him a scathing response. It was actually silent shot. He does give. The Danish guy is actually pretty... They'll tell you what they think. And yeah, like the commentator at the time was like, oh, you shouldn't be that. It's unprofessional. <laughs> like you should be nice to everybody. I was like, should you? In life. Like it's a nice ideal, but... Should you be nice to everybody in top sport? Benji, I've I've brought this up a few times just and I don't want to shit too much on cycling mm-hmm. commentators, but I only experience the English yep. version. Is is it different in in French? Is is there French. more nuance to it? That? Like is there you a different think style? I French commentary, ben, my friend. Benji can't speak French. I don't know. Give me <laughs> <laughs> Maybe is there a Flemish one? I don't know. So, first of all, Belgium's split in two parts. We've got, well, it's not split, but... I know you got yeah, your Flemish, Flemish speakers French and your French speakers. Then we've got some Germans yeah. on the right side to spice it up even more. Let's just say that I'm in the Flemish part. So I'm basically Dutch-speaking, but with a very okay. bad accent to the point that Dutch people have no clue what I'm saying. We've got separate commentators. We've got Sporza. And I'd say it's about the same. And, like... Before I start roasting really? commentators, I'd say that it's probably an underrated job to talk three, four hours over a cycling race, <laughs> but now let's 100%. talk, ro- let's talk roasting for a second. As a consequence of that being three, four hours, they probably tend to fill time saying stuff that they're like doing consciously and they're like spewing out a fact that is not really a fact, that is not true at all, just in there. And as a cycling fan, that's super triggering, of course. And... In Belgium, there's the incredible Belgian bias on the on the live broadcast. Then when it comes to like the international broadcast, you see that in other countries as well. But it's very noticeable because like the one thing that always is kept to mind is, for example, the Imola World Championships. Um, we had Alaphilippe up front, Roglic and, and Wout van Aert behind after Wout van Aert had worked for Roglic at the Tour de France, blah, blah, blah. And Roglic didn't take over, didn't really work for Wout van Aert. And Belgian commentary was like, Roglic should be riding the entire race now for Wout van Aert as a payoff for what he did. Facts. And we're like roasting Roglic straight up during that broadcast. And that's also very triggering. But I'd also say that my biggest gripe with commentary is that when they're not really saying anything, as in they're either repeating mm. the same thing the entire time or they're talking about, oh, this rider has been preparing for this race her entire life. She's she's so ready to win a race like this. Like, and then every 10 sentences is like, oh, this rider, she's trained so much on a time trial bike. And I'm like, I want to, I want to know what's going on in the, talk about what's happening in the bloody race. Because like, they're sometimes too friendly to the extreme where, and you've got this in women's cycling more than you've got this in men's cycling, which I think is a bit slightly misogynistic in my opinion, that like overprotecting female cyclists and i've heard lots of female cyclists also talk about that that they don't necessarily like that aspect they can't do anything wrong like almost there's no bad tactics it's like exactly yeah yeah Mm. there's no tactics necessarily discussed that are that are bad like last year for example sd works had horrible tactics in some races and you never hear that in the commentary and in men's cycling you also often don't necessarily hear that i feel like sometimes you do hear them them sometimes sprinkled in like things like oh we i didn't expect to see that team do that thing but loads of the time there's so many tactical stuff going on and then i'm asking is that because they're scared of 
hurting these writers' feelings, or is that because they don't see it? What's the what's the um the structure of it? Is it is it a a um a play by play commentator who and all and one other like color person yeah. who might have been a former pro? Yeah. Or is it what's the what's the actual on camera structure? That's the basic structure of most cycling comment commentary broadcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then maybe two pros, kind of like the Mets. The Mets broadcast. God forbid the Mets. The worst team to follow right now, but yeah, they got Steve Cohen, professional broadcaster, play-by-play, and then two ex-players from uh, a heralded Mets team. I see. From my my take has always been that I don't feel we need the play-by-play, especially in that longer section. We need we need to remove that um, the person who is then they don't need to be former pros or anything like that. Just try and remove that structure of the person who's going to just talk about the people who are in the breakaway and that, that kind of stuff and, and create a little bit more of an, I hate to use the term, but like a bantery type narrative to the whole thing. I, I think there's also people are reluctant to criticise tactics because of they, their competency maybe. Like they don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Like, for example, the horrendous crash of Gino Maida when he passed away this week, um, Magnus Sheffield actually crashed before him. There's no footage of those crashes but the commentators never noticed that Sheffield was with the group two over the top, yep. was not with group one, was not with group two, was not with group three, and was not across the line five minutes after the finish. And no, they, no one noticed. And I was like, I was, I was like 100% he's crashed. And so already I was like, alarm bells. Um, and so, but it's easy to say that from talking in your Discord, yeah. on Twitter, um, not having to talk, it's it's a tough job. You're trying to you maybe have a producer in your ear saying we're going to commercial in two minutes. It's a really tough job. I've never done it, so it's easy for me to criticize. Um, it's also probably a thankless job. People will remind you probably on Twitter very loudly yep. if you fuck up. Um, not so many people saying thanks for such a good <laughs> job on hour three to four of the Balwaza tour today. And also, I think a lot of <laughs> I think a lot of commentators also get like shit on just for a way their, their voice sounds, for example, and stuff like that to the point that that must hit your self-confidence a lot as well. I, I'd, written, I'd written down here in the notes, Benji, we need to do a pop culture oh lesson for you. And I don't remember why I put that in. I just, I have this memory of listening to you guys talking on some podcasts a number of times and Patrick would bring up a reference to a very, very important movies such as Talladega, Talladega Nights what is that? or even like a Zoolander or something. Well, first of all, of the two movies that you just said, the first one I've never heard of, the second one I know exists but I have never watched. I have seen, You've never seen some Zoolander. Will Ferrell movies, I'm pretty sure. As in, yeah, I've never seen Zoolander. <laughs> I'll watch it, I promise Benji, you. just I name will some big Twitch and streamers and report back to you. you make Chris sound like a massive but, boomer to anyone under 20 that's... Watching. Yeah, yeah. Flip the script <laughs> on him. <laughs> That's actually a very good idea. Or I don't know, major like YouTubers. Who's Logan Paul, Chris? Domestic for a star. <laughs> Not sure. Might as well yeah. be. But I'd say that when it comes to these movies, like I've seen Will Ferrell movies, but they're just not the ones that Patrick talks about. Maybe he's just getting old. I am older. I am older than Benji. Um I'm showing my age, maybe. But when Benji gets here down door, I'm going to put a cougar in the car and be like, you want to be a man? You want to drive fast, boy? 
in that car, fight a fucking cougar. Drive it. Um, what is the reference? See, that's just... Yeah, see, exactly. If you've seen the movie, it'd be very funny to you. And like, whenever I put a Star Wars <laughs> reference or a Lord of Rings reference or oh, a reference yeah. like that in the podcast, the other I'm, end of I'm the gone. podcast has no fucking clue what I'm <laughs> talking about. So Lord I feel of the Rings like, are a bit better. Really now? <laughs> like, not that strong, but, you know, Viggo Mortensen, good-looking man, Orlando Bloom, <laughs> good-looking man. You're 14, you don't know which way the world's going. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, just just to just to, to review, you you had a okay here, all right. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. All right, I think that might do us, guys. Benji, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, I'll drop links to the boys' show. Huge couple of weeks coming up for them with the tour. That is the place to go for all your information and baby Yoda spotting. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Jesse, and we will see you real soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.